Thanks for leading us today. Awesome. And it's good to see you all here. We had a snow day last week, didn't we? How many of you showed up, though? Oh, good. Because I was feeling bad about that, if you know. I know one person who showed up to the early service, but uh, after that I figured if they don't know, they'll figure it out. So I'm glad none of you were them. Uh, well, to have a snow day like that is, you know, good every once in a while. I hope you had a time of connection, at least stayed cozy at home, at least those of you who had wood heat if you were out of power, because I know a lot of us were out of power. Good to have you back. If there's anything we've noticed in, in Ruth so far, it's this. Life can be devastatingly difficult. Naomi's family, we have been hearing this story, has been decimated. And her return to her hometown was marked by bitterness and hardship. How could she not feel that God had turned against her? The evidence seemed conclusive. God's goodness was gone, or at least gone from her. Let me ask you, how would you have interpreted her tragedy, if you'd been around her in that, or maybe better yet, actually, how do you interpret difficulty in your own life? How do you interpret difficulty when it happens to you? I actually love to hear you. Shout it out. I'll repeat it for the podcast so that those who are listening in um, throughout the week know what you've said, but go ahead and shout it out. How do you interpret difficulty when it happens in your life? What do you do? Uh, why me? Exactly. What else? How do you interpret difficulty? I'm depressed. Yeah. Another day of life. How do you interpret difficulty when it happens to you? Life. Say it again, Mish. Life bites and life kisses. How many times have you had to tell yourself that recently, Mish? A lot. That's right. When troubles come, how do we know that God is still for us and not against us? This is a crucial question. And today we're going to explore why we can be confident in God's goodness, even when it seems like it might be gone for good. We continue in our story of Ruth. It's this short story tucked away in the early part of the Bible. It's the eighth book in the Bible. The Bible, you might know this, has 66 books in it. This is the eighth book. So it's early on in the story. And we've been going through this for, uh, let's see, what, a month now or so? We printed today's portion of scripture that we're looking at in your programs. You can look at that. Uh, you can follow along if you have a Bible or even on your, on your phone. We're in Ruth chapter 2. We're starting in verse 15, and we're continuing to the end of the chapter. You might remember way back when, before the snow day, we looked at the lunch that happened in the middle of that harvest day. Well, lunch is over, and everyone is getting back to work. In verse 15, we read, As Ruth, or as she, got up to glean, Boaz gave orders. Boaz is the owner of the field. He gave orders to his men, to his hired workers. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. In other words, let her pick up stuff right where you're harvesting and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them there for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. You know that? Boaz is doing a lot more than just letting Ruth glean. He's actively supporting her faithfulness and now he's instructing his own men to funnel resources whenever they can toward her. 
And, and what's more, he's saying, and while you're doing it, don't make her feel bad about it. Like, don't make her feel intimidated. In fact, why don't we make her day a crazy success? And so, verse 17, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she gathered, and it mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Now, let's just pause there for a moment because I want you to see something cool. Ruth comes home with a pile of food. How many of you know what an ephah is? I have an ephah of barley right here, courtesy of Jessica Birdsaw. And I want you to feel how much Ruth brought home. Stand up, Ryan. I'm throwing it at you, man. I want you to feel how much. This is a dairy farmer. He can handle it, folks. It's all right. This is an ephah barley. Why don't you pass that around, Brian? Be careful who you give it to. I want you to feel the ephah of barley. This is what Ruth brought home for on the day. One day gleaning in the field. It's actually an incredible amount of grain. For her to have gathered, gleaned, and threshed, like beat it out with her hands, in one day. Now, we don't really have a lot to compare it to, do we? But I want you to understand that that ephah there is an incredible amount. And here's why. An average worker in the fields of Boaz, on the same day, harvest day, would have been paid, likely, in grain. Do you know how much that average worker who had worked all day, do you know how much he would have taken home? This much. There you go. There's your day's wages. Two pounds, approximately. Go ahead and pass that around, Tom. Two pounds. Ruth took approximately 15 times home of the amount that the guys working all day for pay would have brought home. It's an incredible amount to have gleaned in one day. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's kind of like a, almost like a Jesus-style parable where this one worker comes along and everybody just pours out the goodness on them so that they go home with way more. Now, now it's obviously evidence that she must have worked hard, right? She harvested all day. She threshed it all at the end. It's amazing. But I think it's also evidence that Boaz's men must have really kicked it out into high gear, like making a game of it. Let's see how much we can give her. Yeah, sorry, Nell. It's heavy. You don't have to, yeah. I can take it back here. Thanks, Tom. This is an ephah. Now, Jessica and I, I want you to know how hard I work for this. I shouldn't say those kinds of things, but I, I took my life into my hands last Saturday night when it was blizzard, when you were all tucked home at night to get this. Okay? Here's the deal. When I turned onto Spears Road, I thought I was going to die getting that last half a mile to Jessica's farm. I'm glad I was in a truck. And now Jessica and I are out there in the dark trying to get, some, get an ephah of grain, yeah. And we didn't have a scale, so we're like, how much do you think 30 pounds is? Oh, that's enough. That feels like a lot. I get home and I weigh it out, and we only had 22 pounds. So then I call her this week, because of the snow day, you understand. I'm like, I've got to make this right. I don't want to pass around sort of an ephah. I want to pass around an ephah. So Jessica very kindly dropped off five more pounds of barley to me so we could make it accurate. There you go. Now you have an ephah. And what struck me also after a long day of work in the fields is not, uh, Ruth, she carried that thing home. I had a hard time carrying it in from the parking lot. She, caught, she came home with it, and after a long day of work, it, it's an incredible amount to have gleaned. And what's more, Ruth comes home with leftover lunch. What's striking for me is she may not have even had lunch when she left that morning. 
And she came home with leftovers. And rather than Naomi having to take some of the raw barley, having to roast it and pound it and make it into food, it might have taken her an hour or two to get something to eat. She has a ready-made meal. It's like Ruth stopped by McDonald's on her way home just so Naomi would have something to eat. There's both daily provision, daily bread, and future provision. It's like a windfall has come to this family. Heaps of generosity after only one day. And when Ruth walks in that night, bitter, dejected, depressed, grieving Naomi experiences a shift. Her mother-in-law asked her, verse 19, Where did you clean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Boaz. You hear that whooshing sound? That's the sound of Naomi's soul coming back together. It's the sound of hope returning to the void. At that very moment, when that sack of grain hits the ground and lunch is offered, bitter transforms back into pleasant. Remember how Naomi, her name means pleasant? She said, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. It means bitter. All of a sudden, Mara is gone. Naomi is back. Verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He, referring to God, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. There's a lot of cultural background here. Let me explain that a little bit. We all know what an ephah is now, maybe painfully so. But what is a guardian redeemer? We don't use that nowadays. A guardian redeemer in those days, in that culture, is a close relative who's legally responsible to protect the extended family, their extended family, from personal and financial ruin. They would step in to save the family. They would even step into situations where maybe someone had been killed or maybe someone was dead. They would step in to receive, like, if there was, like, some kind of compensation pay given for this person's death or something, they could step in for that. They were also the people that uh, they had, a, they had a way of exacting some justice back then that went like this. If someone murdered me, then my guardian redeemer would be responsible to go find that guy and, yep, get rid of him. So these guardian redeemers, they were, they, were all, they were all there to try to provide protection, to try to be kind of a people of last resort to protect the family from ruin. And we'll discover more of this as the story unfolds. But what matters for today is this. Boaz is a close enough relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, that he actually bears legal responsibility for provision and protection for this family, to protect them from ruin. So perhaps... Even the, the generosity we've seen from Boaz already is it's not only connected to the great respect he has for Ruth and her faithfulness. It is connected to that. But it's also linked up to his responsibility, his legal responsibility to provide and to protect this family. Well, we'll see more on this in the weeks to come because Boaz is going to play a key role in rescuing this family from ruin. But for now, Ruth finishes her story. Verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he, referring to Boaz, said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. 
What a turn of events. Eh? Beautiful, a beautiful twist and a very difficult story because at that moment, everything changes for Naomi. Remember back to the first part of the story. Naomi is trying to bring together her faith in Yahweh, her faith in God, and the fate of her family. And she's trying to put these things together. What she knows or believes or has been told about God and what has happened to her family. And she's trying to put them together and she's trying to make sense of it. And she's trying to understand how does this go with this. And when she puts it together, the only thing she can come up with is that Yahweh has turned against us. That Yahweh, God, has stopped loving her. And more than that, not just stop loving her, but he's actually actively become their enemy. He's turned against her, against her family. That's all she can see at this point. You know, God might not be dead, but he's dead to us. And she's been living under the shadow of that belief since then. And she viewed her return, or even her hometown, perhaps even her foreign daughter-in-law, as she heads out into the fields to, to glean. She, she's viewing all of this under the gray shadow of that depressing conviction that God has stopped loving us. But when Ruth comes back that evening, when Ruth offloads this big sack of grain, when she offers her the leftover lunch, as small and as insignificant as it may seem compared to losing a husband and two sons, it's like her whole world tilts. It's a sign of something bigger. It's a reminder of something more powerful than death itself. It's like the sun has broken through after a long, difficult storm. It's like someone sitting at, the, at a hospital bed when the heart monitor has gone flat. But after 30 seconds, there's a blip, a sign of life. And suddenly, based on this twist, Naomi's perspective shifts from the Lord's hand has turned against me to Yahweh has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Now this can sound, I admit, kind of extreme. And we're talking about the death of her husband and kids. What is that compared to a sack of grain and some leftover lunch? As as, as significant as that is, what is that to compare with that? Even the announcement of Boaz's surprise presence doesn't offset the losses that she's experienced. But when we realize it's not the stuff itself that is making the shift for her. Rather, these things have become a sign for her that God, not that God stopped loving her and now has started loving her again, but that all through God never did stop loving her. He never did turn against her. He never has forgotten her, not once, not ever. When Naomi says here, Yahweh has not stopped showing kindness, she's using that special Hebrew word. She's already used it once in the story. And it's a special Hebrew word that we, uh, we noted it back in chapter 1. It's often interpreted kindness or loving kindness or even steadfast love. But it's a word, it's one of these unique words in Hebrew that just doesn't work with one word in English. There's no single word that can capture it. It needs a whole range of words so that we can understand what's going on. Kindness is good as far as that goes, but it doesn't go far enough. It's much deeper than that. Hesed is the word, and hesed means always faithful, always seeking the benefit of the other, always performing action for the other, even sacrificial action. It's the kind of loving kindness that never, ever quits. That's what's encompassed in this world. 
You see, when Naomi put her last son in the ground after already burying one, after already burying her husband in a foreign land, they left home because of a famine. Everything had possibly that could go wrong had gone wrong. And when she looked at her last son in the ground, she realized and concluded one thing, that God's hesed had somehow moved on from her family. But there, after dark, after that long day of waiting and wondering, a greater truth crashed back into her life. A greater truth when she realizes through this simple bag of grain, this simple entrance of lunch, and and this, this awareness that somehow Boaz is in the picture, she realizes at that moment that God had never stopped loving her. Not ever. And it's the turning point in Naomi's story. It's the moment when she realized that Yahweh was actually still with her. That Yahweh had never changed. That Yahweh was still faithful to her and even to her family, even to her own dead husband and sons. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I'm willing to guess that you may have wondered at times, based on the difficulties of your own life, based on struggles in your own life, you may have wondered, has God stopped loving me? Has God stopped loving my family? Maybe you wouldn't have even put your finger on it that much. Maybe you wouldn't have said that. But you've kind of thought, I wonder if God even notices anymore. Like, or maybe you've wondered, is God even... Like, he might not, like, hate me, but maybe he just isn't that interested in, like, caring for me anymore. Maybe he's not actively pursuing my good anymore. He's just kind of like, you know, that family, I'm just going to kind of set them to the edge because I've got more promising people to work with. You know, maybe you've felt like that. Maybe you've experienced the loss of a loved one that you, you just feel like you don't know how you can get up in the morning and keep on going because this person who was so central to your life is now gone. Maybe you've struggled because there was an end to a relationship that you prayed for, worked for, hoped for, tried to figure out how to make it work, and yet this relationship has come to an end and it's left you devastated and you've wondered, God, did you see that? Do you see what's happening in my life because this person is now gone? It might be because of an ongoing health struggle where you've prayed for healing, you've prayed for healing, you've believed in healing, you've done everything possible, you think that, that could somehow bring healing and yet... God, who should be able to heal you, hasn't healed you. And you're wondering, God, have you noticed this? Do you see my struggle? Do you see every day I get up where I feel awful or I feel pain or I feel struggle? Like, have you noticed? Have you forgotten? Are you still faithful? Some of you, I know, have raised children and are raising children. And you've raised them to know who God is and know what is right. And yet, for whatever reason, they're making choices in their life that is destructive to them, that are contrary to what God would desire for them. You can even see some of the ways that's going to bring hurt into their lives. And, and, you, and you wonder, like, God, I've been faithful. I've tried to be, I'm not, I wasn't a perfect parent, but I tried to do my best. And, Lord, don't you see? Don't you see what's going on? Have you forgotten us as a family? I know that if you have financial struggles, where you feel like, come on, I'm giving faithfully, I'm tithing, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to steward what you've given me, and yet it seems like paycheck to paycheck, I'm wrestling and I'm struggling, and it never feels like there's enough. Lord, aren't you supposed to bless me? Aren't you supposed to take care of me? What's going on? Aren't you faithful? Maybe you struggle with a marriage crisis. Maybe it feels like your marriage is always in crisis. Maybe it feels like, it feels like always so fragile, like every day is walking on eggshells with her or with him. You're wondering, how can this marriage be restored? How can we do this? And, and, and you're trying and you're praying, God, don't you notice what's going on? Don't you know how much better it would be if this marriage could grow and flourish and be honoring to you? And then for some of us, of course, we've experienced the tragedy of divorce, of betrayal, where the person who had promised to love you didn't. 
and that's thrown your perspective on God's love for you into question. Perhaps, perhaps it's not even something external. Perhaps it's internal. Maybe it's a sin pattern or a struggle or a habit in your life or something that just keeps coming up and you, you've prayed about it and you've wrestled with it and you've struggled with it and you've asked God to help you and you, you've, you've done the nine steps or the 12 principles and you've got somebody to you know, hold you accountable, but it seems like there's good seasons, but then there's other seasons where you, you're falling down again and it's ripping you apart, even causing problems in your relationships, problems in your health. You think, God, don't you hear me? I want to change. I want to, I want to see your goodness come to my life, and it doesn't seem to be changing. Or maybe it's a struggle with mental health, where anxiety and depression keeps, keeps rearing its ugly head in your life, and you wonder if it could ever be different. And then for some of us, maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's just a sense of numbness, a loss of purpose, where we thought, I thought life was supposed to be more than this. I thought there was supposed to be something joyful about the Christian life. I thought there would be, be something better for me. God, have you forgotten me? Are you still for me? Perhaps you've wondered in your own life if God love, God's love still applies to you. Or maybe there's people in your life who are wondering that. You're wondering how you can help them. And here's the main point that I believe we learn from the story of Ruth and Naomi today. Here it is. We interpret what we're going through by who God is. We don't interpret who God is by what we're going through. Let me say that again. We interpret what we're going through by who God is. We don't interpret who God is by what we're going through. This is a crucial distinction. See, Naomi had faced devastating ruin, and I know that some of you have as well. Maybe not in the, all the same areas, or, but, but maybe in one area, maybe multiple areas, maybe in ways that are hidden and only you know about, no one else here knows, or maybe it's in ways that you know, splash all over Facebook and everyone knows what happened in your life. But you've experienced this kind of devastation. The fact is we live in a sin-ridden, violent disease rampant, not yet restored in Jesus' world. That is just true. There's no getting around it. We can't minimize the heartache and the hopelessness that Naomi must have felt or that others experienced or that we ourselves have experienced. And her mistake, Naomi's mistake, was not crying out in pain, was not even lashing out at God. Her, her miss wasn't her honesty. It wasn't her lament. Her mistake, if I can put it that way, and I put it that way gently, was that she allowed her circumstances to interpret her God, rather than allowing her God to interpret her circumstances. Because you see, if we do that, if we're, if we're willing to let our circumstances interpret who God is, then who God is is going to change depending on how you're feeling today or what you're experiencing next week. And every time there's a difficulty, every time there's a tragedy, every time something happens in your life, you're going to be, you're going to be thinking, well, I guess God doesn't love me anymore because you've anchored your perspective on who God is in the circumstances of your life. This is true of us as adults. It's true of us as youth. Maybe some of us who haven't even experienced negative things or a tremendous amount of difficulty in our life, we know that if we are going to anchor it in circumstances, we are going to be thrown in the future when these kinds of things happen. Naomi, she forgot that there was a larger story, that she was part of a larger story of God's faithfulness. And for her, this faithfulness had been revealed by God through his consistent character as she would have been able to look back at people like Adam or Noah, people, people like Abraham and Sarah and, and, and Isaac and Rebecca, these great uh, heroes of faith, but people of her own family who had waited 
years and years and experienced tremendous difficulty and were thrown into pits and wandered around the wildernesses and and didn't know which end was up. And yet God, as you look at the story, was always, always faithful, never forgot them, never left them out to dry. She could look back at this and see that, oh, wait, God is always faithful to his people. Naomi chose, though, to let her circumstances question God's love rather than let God's love answer her circumstances. Because our circumstances, you see, they they don't determine God's love for us. God's love for us in Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross has already proved irrevocably and unchangeably that he is for us, not against us. Not only she could look back, she had enough to look back on and mark God's faithfulness through the story of her people, but we have even more to look back on. We can look back at the greatest act of faithful love ever revealed in all of history. And that is the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. When we go through difficulty and loss in life, and some of us more than others, we understand that this is part of being here. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. And he said that because there's trouble in this world. There's sin and there's difficulty and there's rebellion and there's hurt and there's disease and there's brokenness. But then he added on top of that, and by the way, if you've chosen to follow me and live according to my kingdom, which runs counter to the kingdom of this world and the desires people have, then guess what? You're going to have even more trouble because you're following me. Yeehaw. But Jesus said to take heart because he said, I have overcome the world. In Jesus, God's faithful hesed, his faithful love, was anchored once and for all. Jesus, the perfect son of God, became one of us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought back into right relationship with our loving father. And so Jesus is the supreme evidence of who God is and how much he loves us. And it doesn't matter what kind of circumstances occur. It doesn't matter what happens in life. Nothing changes that fact. The greatest fact of all history interprets our present circumstances all of our difficulty all of our hardship all hardship all of our heartache and health struggles and grief and loss they must be interpreted through the grid of this one truth god loves us unconditionally in jesus and his faithful love to us will never change will never waver will never falter not one fraction never we prove that in jesus Paul, in his words to uh, Christians in Rome, he said this in chapter 5 of Romans. He said, Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. We have peace with God. We've been restored in this relationship. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. It's amazing stuff what Christ has done for us. Then he says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops the strength of character. And and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Rather than allowing our difficulties, rather than allowing uh, devastation and struggles to be some kind of proof that God has stopped loving us, we can think about it entirely differently. 
that these circumstances, rather than being opportunities to root up or dig up or make our faith falter, are actually opportunities for us to remember that God is more faithful, that God is bigger than our struggles, and that his faithful love never quits. You remember the song we sang a couple weeks ago in Malcolm? Your love never fails, never gives up, right? Never runs out on me. And then more than that, knowing that God's love never quits, we even can embrace and see these difficulties difficulties we're experiencing in a new way because we see now that God actually can use them to develop us, to, to grow us, to even reveal the depth of his faithfulness and his love to us, even in the midst of the struggle, because regardless of what happens, he cannot stop loving us. God is love. It's the very essence of his character. Love is who God is. And while we may not always see how he's going to work it out, we can be confident because of who he is, that whatever the circumstance, he will work it out for the good of those who love him. And we can add, he'll work it out for the good of those he loves. When that grain sack hit the floor that evening, when Naomi had offered to her a ready-made lunch, when she hears surprisingly of Boaz's presence in the story unexpected, she realizes at that moment that God had never left her That God was with her when she stood beside the grave of her husband, the grave of her sons. That God was with her when she struggled with feeling abandoned and alone and isolated, far away in a foreign land. When when she decided on that road to go back to Bethlehem, when she wrestled with her daughter-in-laws whether they would come. And then she rides that, walks that long walk back home that God had never, ever left her. She may have felt alone. She may have felt abandoned, but God was with her. And she realizes at that moment that his love never fails, never falters, never changes. He has not stopped showing his kindness. And he never will. But where does that leave us today? I want to suggest two responses for us, and then our third response will be to go to communion. First, this is an opportunity for us to review our difficulties. And I want to ask you, how have you been viewing your difficulties in life? Have you been rooting your interpretation of what's going on in your life, have you been rooting that in the overarching established fact of God's love in Jesus? Or have you been letting your situation raise questions about God's goodness and love? What's the filter through which you've been seeing what's been going on in your life? And I want to challenge you and encourage you to make God's established love for you in Jesus the anchor of your life, the center of it, your interpretive grid. It doesn't mean we can't be honest, even loud, in our laments and our struggles. We can take cues from, from the Psalms, for example. In Psalm 13, let me read it for you because I, I think it really shows that even anchoring our life in God's love means we can be brutally honest in the struggle that we experience. Psalm 13 reads like this. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we've defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Is that honest enough for you? Some of you, I know, shift and squirm a little bit with the idea of even talking to God like that, let alone giving a little tone. But this is honest stuff. But then look where it goes without, without, without pause. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. 
I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. We can anchor our experiences in life in the love of God. We can know that no matter what happens, we can cry out to God, but we can trust his unfailing love. And I encourage you and challenge you with whatever difficulty you may be experiencing, that you view them through God's unstoppable love for you. That's our first response. Second, threading through this whole story in chapter 2 especially, we see this. Our generosity to others reveals God's care for others. Our generosity to others reveals God's care for others. I hope you've seen that. We haven't emphasized it a lot today, but it's all there through the story. People receive signs of God's care, God's presence, God's love for them, this love that never changes. They, 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 they might have thought God was absent, but they, they receive signs of God's presence through the generosity of others. In Naomi's case, Ruth's generosity and Boaz's generosity, they come together to pull the curtain back for Naomi so she can see that God has not stopped loving her. I know this is true in our lives. That when we lean into the generosity that God births in us, as we are generous with others, their perspective on life and God and others and themselves shifts. And my invitation to us is to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as you are sparked to be generous with your resources, with your time, with your money, with your ears, with your eyes, with your homes, with your cars, whatever as you're inspired to be generous, to realize that it is through your generosity to others that God's goodness is often revealed. A woman in our church, I talked to her about this. She knows I'm telling this story, but I'm keeping it anonymous. Uh, Recently, she received an unexpected gift. Someone, um, this, this person who received this gift has been experiencing lots of difficulties, lots of struggles, the kind of struggles that, that raise questions about, about life and about faith and about God and about others and about yourself. In in the midst of the struggle, in a very unexpected way, uh, she received an extravagant gift, something that was anonymously given by a member of this community to her. It blew her away. It was something that she had never experienced before, something she totally did not expect. And I got to tell you, the day that that happened for her, something shifted for her. Something shifted where she began to, well, she was just blown away by it, but something began to shift in her, something deep and profound, because as she experienced that generosity, as she wrestled through even receiving that, it shifted in her the way that she was feeling about herself, the way that she was feeling about her experiences and her difficulties, even the way she was feeling here in this community. I've got to tell you, the generosity that she experienced has been revealing God's care her and i know this is true for so many others and so my challenge my invitation to all of us is as we hear this that we would be willing to share generosity share that generosity share generously with others knowing that god in some amazing way can use our generosity to reveal his care i hope and pray that we can be that kind of community let me finish with this and then we'll go to communion i don't know the depth and the difficulty of your personal stories. I know some of you, but I don't know all I don't know all of it, obviously. But in spite of not knowing all of that, I do know something that's even more true of you than your difficulty, more true of you than your struggle, more true of you than your circumstances, and that is this. God's eternal, unchanging love, his love that will never stop, his love that is always faithful, is more true about you 
than any circumstance you're going through. His love never fails. I want to thank you all for being here today. I hope that you leave today encouraged and challenged both personally as well as being able to encourage and challenge others who may be experiencing difficulty to remember God's unfailing love for them. I want to give you a heads up about next week. One of the things that's been going through Ruth um, that really stood out to me, in chapter 2 in particular, was how, how careful and how valued women are. And uh, as I was praying about it and as I was discussing it with others, I realized that I, I needed to, to raise something in particular that comes out of the Ruth text that speaks to, to something that's current going on within our world. The Me Too campaign that has erupted in the last six months has brought to the light a kind of ugly, uh, awful way that women in particular have been harassed, abused, and, abused and assaulted, often in the workplace, often in their own homes. And uh, it has been called one of the largest societal shifts that's happened since the 1960s as the, the mask has been torn off, the lies have been exposed, the abuse has come to light, and it is not done. And I felt that it would be important for us to address that because it's right there in Ruth as we see the way women are held up with dignity in the way that they are valued. And we see that in the ministry and the life of Jesus. And so I wanted to uh, address that specifically next week. But I wanted to offer a little bit of a warning. I know many of you, women in particular, have experienced assault, abuse, harassment, and difficulty in your life. I know that. And so I wanted to offer this little bit of a trigger warning. Not, I hope, that you'd stay away, that you come perhaps more prepared for the subject we're going to address. Also that we all together would pray, um, pray that this would be a significant way that we lean into the value and dignity of women, that we pray for healing and we, we take steps to be a safer community for people, be safer, safer people for others. And so I'd ask you to pray with me on that, uh, but we'll be addressing that next week. And so um, I just wanted to offer that as a little bit of a, a heads up for what's coming. I believe it'll be a powerful time for us as a community. Would you rise for our benediction today? The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.